Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Hello and welcome to the Bike Radar podcast. Brought to you from the team behind Cycling Plus, MBUK and BikeRadar.com. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Bike Radar podcast. My name is Simon Bromley and today I'm joined by Bike Radar's assistant editor, Jack Luke. Uh, sorry, so, excuse me, deputy editor. Oh, deputy Simon. editor, of course, you've had a, <laughs> a promotion, haven't you? Of course you have. Well, I should say, just to be fair, Simon, now our senior tech writer, <laughs> also had a promotion. It's all movement here at Bike Radar. <laughs> I'm joined by my deputy editor, Jack Luke, who is fresh back from his very first cycling illuminati industry meetup since the pandemic began and he's going to talk us through a very exciting new bike and on top of that we're going to talk a little bit about paris-roubaix tech some fancy new tires a new aero bike and some new mountain bike suspension kit that jack and i don't really understand but it's very exciting (laughs) so jack where have you been i very recently was in Leuven in Flanders, where I was lucky enough to catch a little bit of the World Championships racing for both men's and women's road races. I did write a fun little feature on that one, which you can see on bikerader.com. But more specifically, I was there to see the all-new specialised Crux, which is a pretty remarkable bike. It is claimed by the brand to be the world's lightest gravel bike, boasting a 725-gram claimed weight for a size 56-centimetre frame with total frame weights coming in at, or sorry, total bike weights coming in at 7.25 kilos. So you said it's a gravel bike there, but the Specialized Crux used to be a cyclocross bike, didn't it? So has Specialized kind of changed everything about it, or is it just a minor update? I mean, the actual frame itself, and we will talk more about this, is totally different. If you've seen photos of the bike, it basically looks like a gravel version of the Athos, which is their ultralight road bike, which launched last year. If you actually boil it down and look at things like the geometry, it's actually not that different compared to the old Crux. But the tyre clearances and the construction of the new bike is very, very different. Um, And that kind of low weight is very much driven by that frame construction. Now, this is a hugely oversimplified uh, description of how it works. But if you consider a traditional carbon frame, it tends to be quite angular and quite have quite harsh angles on the bikes for example where seat stays typically meet seat tubes particularly if you've got dropped seat stays they tend to meet at a fairly uh acute angle we'll call it in some areas whereas if we look at something like the specialized crux it is much more organic in form and even when you can compare it to kind of traditional you know double diamond uh or double triangle rather um bike frames like it really does have this quite smooth, organic feel overall. And the reason behind this, according to Specialized, is that where they have the tubes meeting in this quite fluid way, it allows them to use longer piles of carbon without having to use reinforcement layers. And I think it really does just boil down to the shape of the frame 
meaning it doesn't require those stiffening layers. And all of that adds up to what it claims is 150 gram saving in composite weight with the frame alone. Now, obviously Specialized already has its diverged gravel bike, which is kind of like a, the Specialized Roubaix, which is obviously you know a, a race bike, um, but with wider tire clearances. How does the crux differ from the diverge? And, and you know, is Specialized kind of keeping both in the range or is this superseding one or? They're very much going to be in the uh, existing together. The crux is quite different. If I'm feeling cheeky, I would call it a lifestyle gravel bike <laughs> uh, because, you know, it doesn't have uh, mudguard mounts. It doesn't have rack mounts. It doesn't even have the top tube mount, which we're seeing on many endurance road bikes, let alone gravel bikes these days. It is a very, very pared back bike uh, that, you know, wouldn't be your first choice necessarily for shred ready gravel packing. But then on the other hand, it is very lightweight and could make a good race bike, but it also isn't like super integrated and super aero like we're seeing from some other bikes from Cervelo or maybe the uh, 3T Exploro or the new Cannondale Super 6 Evo CX. They're they kind of like your real strictest word race bikes for gravel. Whereas this thing, much like the Athos, Specialized are keen to push the fact, yeah, it's very, very lightweight, but it's more about the riding experience as a whole. And... I'm going to be honest, I really like it. Like, I really do like it. It is kind of, it's the sort of bike I appreciate. And I do like that paired back design overall. And while we've said many, many times on this podcast, you know, weight ultimately isn't the most important factor if all you care about is performance on a bike. On a gravel bike where your speeds are typically lower, or if you are riding more technical or steeper terrain, that lightness is pretty remarkable. I, you know, I, I'm not by any means saying that a heavy gravel bike is difficult to climb up steep climbs. It's just that very feathery weight, when I did get a chance to ride it, is very noticeable when you're coming up and over technical terrain. And more than anything, people want to buy this lightweight bike because it's something to boast about. And it's a, it's a joy to own this kind of technically advanced thing. I have no doubt that people will love it for that reason alone. And yeah, I, pr I appreciate the bike for what it is. However, I will never personally be able to appreciate the particular bike I rode because it would set you back a whopping $12,000 <laughs> or £10,750 if you were to buy the exact same. In fact, no, sorry, that's not entirely true. It actually cost you even more to buy the bike I was riding because I had the new specialized Roman Evo with mirror saddle, which is probably another $450 on top of that. Well, so... It's a it's a very pretty bike. bike though, isn't it? And I think I think like you say, like kind of it's like a bit like the AFOS. It's sort of simplicity is its appeal, right? Like, and, and it doesn't have integrated cable routing up front. It is like kind of like round tubes. It looks very pretty, like you say. It's a kind of lifestyle bike, and I'm you know the AFOS was absurdly popular, and I'm sure this will be just as popular. And uh, yeah, I guess like to buy the kind of halo version is going, is going to cost you a lot of money but i suppose it always has and i and i, and I guess i assume there'll be cheaper versions along the line as well there is indeed so there's uh the s-works model uses specialized 12r layup it's their lightest all singing all dancing layup in the frame but there is also a 10r version and that's on the pro expert and comp models and that adds roughly 100 grams to the frame which at 825 grams for a 56 centimeter frame and the lightest paint without hardware, it's the same as the, the S-Works one. I mean, that's still genuinely light. And the same fork is shared uh, between both. It's the same 12R fork and that's 400 grams-ish. So, I mean, no matter what build you buy, you are going to get a very light bike if that's what interests you. One of the things I do think is 
genuinely impressive with the Crux is that for that lightweight, you are getting like genuine real world practicality if you ignore the stuff like the rack and mudguard mounts. The bike has clearance for 2.1 inch 650B tires or 47mm 700C tires. And that's as good as you get in the majority of gravel bikes before you get into the world of weird drop seat stays and that kind of stuff. For a classic looking bike with such a low weight, that is genuinely impressive tire clearance. Similarly, you also have a 68mm threaded bottom bracket. The bike is also compatible with 27.2 dropper posts. It has a rider weight limit of 125 kilos, although some of the components is 109 kilos. So realistically, it's 109 kilo weight limit. But you know that's not absurd for particularly given this bike could be ridden anywhere that you want to ride a gravel bike. And the final thing I'll say in this, and there is lots to read and watch about the bike on bikerader.com, is my overriding impression of the bike was that yes, it's very lovely, but why would you buy an Athos? You know, ultimately the difference between the two, I don't have my notes to hand, but I think it adds up to like 175 gram difference between an Athos frame set, uh, sorry, an Athos frame and a Crux frame. So, you know, the geometry is going to be slightly compromised if you put narrower tires onto the Crux, but ultimately having big tire clearances like I, I just, I just don't see yeah. why you'd buy. I know what you mean. Sauce. Like, because like you say, if you put narrow, if you were to put twenty fives on the crux, it might really compromise the handling. But if you put a set of say thirty two millimeter tires or thirty four millimeter slicks, like you're not going to lose much speed on the road, right? And uh, you've still got that option of, as you say, putting the bigger tire on for that day when you're going on the gravel and. It's 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 an interesting yeah it's an interesting point. I I, I suppose we'll we'll have to wait and see. Yeah, who the bike will be for is as well as an, another interesting question because if I was if all I was interested in was going as fast as I possibly could mm. in a gravel race, I'd be buying an aero bike because I know you may roll your eyes, but ultimately over the course of two hundred miles, a couple of watts here and there is a big saving, and that's what would matter most to me. However, for the type of riding I do and the type of speeds I ride, I, ha- <laughs> I think the crux is more up my street. Yeah, but uh, but I suppose, like you say, you know, for for a rider like you, you'd probably, I imagine, you would want the mudguard mounts, the kind of you know maybe the the top tube mounts, that sort of thing. So it's kind of it's, as you say, it's kind of tricky, isn't it? Because you say without without those kind of mounts and things like that, you think, well, this is a race bike. But then, like you say, if you're racing, then you want all of those. Well, maybe many people might want those kind of marginal gains. So. It's an interesting one. I think, you know, I think I think we had a similar discussion when the AFOS was launched. To be fair, because when that bike was launched, I was pretty skeptical about it because I thought, oh, this is, you know, what they've essentially done is is they're selling you a 2010 bike with disc brakes. Um, <laughs> but it was, it's been absurdly popular, and and I think our audience has, you know, it's been received really, really well by audiences across the world. So, you know, maybe the kids. Are right and i'm wrong maybe yeah yeah we need to look outside of our uh, performance focused bubble sometimes <laughs> and remember that people just want bikes that look nice. yeah which is absolutely fine right let's move on let's obviously we just had a weekend of exciting cobbled racing at paris roubaix did you manage to catch either race jack or were you out doing something silly I was out doing something silly. I was out on a boat in the middle of the uh, Bristol Channel. So I just got constant updates from you on WhatsApp, Simon. So I felt like I was watching it. Yeah, well, I watched both races, both the inaugural uh, Paris-Roubaix Femme 
and the elite men's race. And both, obviously, you know, as Paris-Roubaix always does, provided incredibly exciting racing. Now, there was, you know, there were, there were a lot of tech talking points. I think, you know, I wrote a column that was published yesterday that perhaps there weren't as many tech t- talking points as there have been in the past. Um, it was more really, you know, more of the same things that we've been seeing at world tour level a lot recently. So disc brakes, tubeless tires, aero kit, that sort of thing. Whereas in the past, you know, we might've seen crazy customizations, cyclocross bikes, cantilever brakes, artisan handmade tubular tires, that sort of thing. Um, you know, were there, were there any kind of tech highlights for you, Jack, or did you find it all a bit dull as well? Uh, I did. I very much enjoyed your column. It's worth reading if you haven't seen it. I think the homogeneity of it all is like, it's not great for you and I, Simon, who are employed to write about bike tech. But ultimately, I think it, it really does reflect that bike tech has got very, very good. And while I realize that riders and teams have to sort of bend to the will of their sponsors, and particularly, you know, with the rise of house brands, you know, these people want them on their nice, expensive stuff. But at the same time, like, you know, I'm sure some of, from a performance perspective, the bikes are really good now. And, that you know, they're probably riding at far higher speeds than they've been done in the past. I know there's been higher average speeds with particularly fast years, but it was also very wet on Saturday and Sunday. So, like, there's not so much of a visual delight with the wild, wacky builds, but I do think that homogeneity isn't, like it is interesting in itself. That's a very diplomatic answer. Yeah, and obviously, you know, for me as a kind of like lover of all things aerodynamic and fast, then I, I you know, I, I love seeing the, you know, pro peloton on aero bikes with skin suits and, you know, kind of rapid tubeless. T- I mean, you know, the fact that, so we'll, we'll talk about this new Continental tire a bit more in a moment, but the fact that they were racing GP5000s at Roubaix is pretty amazing because you know you and i can go out and buy that tire quite easily you know in the past we used to see you know handmade tubulars by the likes of dugast and fmb and obviously you could buy those as a consumer but you never knew if you were quite getting exactly the same tire as fabian cancellara was getting but you know a kind of continental gp5000 str you know when you go to the shop and buy one of those you're literally getting the exactly the same tire as the pros are using and the exact same tire that Filippo Garner has supposedly won the world time trial championships on. So all of this kit is, you know, it's very democratizing. Yes. It's very democratizing. If you've got deep pockets, <laughs> <laughs> you did mention the name of the new tire then Simon. So give us the full scoop since you are our in-house rolling resist tragic nerd. <laughs> well, so yeah, so this tire had, you know, been floating around at pro races for a while. Uh, Cause obviously the, you know, Ghana was using a, a Tanwall GP5000 at the uh, the World Time Trial Championships and a few other Ineos riders uh, had also been using it. And now I had kind of just assumed that that was the Tanwall clincher version of the tyre, uh, which already existed, but it actually turns out it's a brand new tyre. And obviously we haven't, I haven't received a sample set yet. Hopefully that's on the way and we haven't seen any kind of independent rolling resistance testing yet, but... Continental is claiming it reduces rolling resistance by 20%. The weight's gone down 50 grams, which is, you know, that that's always, well, I don't really care about tire weight, but lower weight typically means a tire is faster because there's just less material to to absorb energy. And um, yeah, and it's also now apparently easier to mount. Apparently, well, you know, <laughs> we'll have to wait and see about that one, obviously. And it's compatible with hookless rims, which is great because I think, 
you know, I own a set of hookless rims and one of my main sticking points of them has always been the fact that you couldn't use Continental GP 5000s. Yeah, you couldn't use exactly the best tire on the market. So if Continental has genuinely improved what was essentially the best all-round road racing tire on the market, that's pretty exciting. I think a 20% rolling resistance reduction would take it down to around the same speed as a kind of Vittoria Corsa speed, which is a pure time trial tire. So again, we'll wait for the kind of independent test results and I'm going to try and do a bit of rolling resistance testing myself, but that's pretty exciting. I'd be really keen to know, you know, from Continental's perspective, what have they actually changed to ensure that hookless compatibility? Because, you know, if you didn't know, the previous GP5000 was very strictly verboten, no hookless compatibility, even had it molded into the sidewall of the tire. So, I, yeah, there's no standard still for tubeless. There's no kind of like working overall Oh, I think, yeah, I think there are, so there are like, you know, obviously there are ETRTO standards for hookless rims and for both, you know, hookless and hooked tubeless rims. Now there are, there are standards in place. I think the problem has been that not all tire manufacturers have released tires since those standards have been published. So I think, I think what's changed is that the, so the, the problem with, with hookless rims is that obviously because there's no bead hooks, if the bead can stretch at all, it can potentially blow off the rim if you either inflate it too high or if the bead stretches over time or say, you know, if you were to hit a pothole, for example, where the tire compresses and that causes the tire pressure within the tire to increase massively momentarily, that could lead to a blow off. Um, and so basically the bead has to be completely inflexible and just cannot stretch so i I would assume what they've done is they've updated the bead and obviously you know the the issue is with with kind of racing tires is that yeah you can make a really stiff bead simply by kind of i suppose adding stronger stiffer material but stronger stiffer materials tend to make a tire slower you know that's why gator skins for example are slower than you know your veloflex records right so the issue is how to achieve that kind of balance of, you know, like, like always that Goldilocks balance of kind of durability and strength as well as speed. And obviously, you know, if you, if you take a tire, like a Bellowflex record, that's, you know, paper thin with, you know, a millimeter of tread and it's only available in clincher. And I don't think we'll ever see a tire like that available for hookless because, you know, it kind of goes against everything that tire is designed to be. Um, and so this is, you know, this is, this is kind of where it's interesting with Continental because if they've managed to make a tire that's as kind of fast as a, a pure time trial tire, but is also strong enough to, you know, fit on hookless rims and all of the, and, and, you know, they're claiming also 28% better sidewall protection as well from a new construction. Um, you know, it all, all, you know. I really like Continental tires, and so I'm kind of inclined to believe them. But it does. If this was coming from a brand who I'd never heard of, I'd say it was probably all a bit too good to be true. But we'll just have to wait and see. Wait and see. I can't wait to see you on them and dropping me on Continental <laughs> here. Lovely, fast new tires. Um, next, we have the new Orbea Orca, which, as a bike, is pretty remarkable looking, and I do think part of that's because it has a great big old box on the down tube. But the new the Orca is very much inspired by Orbea's time trial bike, the Ordu. And it like aero bike tech feels a little bit stagnated, if you ask me. 
you know, and has been recent years. We haven't seen any truly, truly wacky bikes in a while. But this one really stands out as a proper Tron-like bike. So why don't you talk us through that, Simon? Yes. So like you say, it's a new Orbea Orca Aero and it launched last week. And yeah, it's taken a lot of kind of design cues from the Ordu time trial bike. Now it it does use a, a standard fork rather than a hinge fork design, as you see on the Ordu. But that's good because it means, you know, a standard round steerer tube, which you can fit a standard stem to. I, lo- I really like the fact that they've gone for a non-integrated front end. I think that's a really smart decision. Um, in the presentation to us, they said that going for a fully integrated cockpit where the handlebar and stem were one piece would have saved around a watt. So, and obviously, you know, when you go for a fully integrated cockpit, you lose the ability to kind of customize it for reach and width and all of those things. And obviously, you know, your body position on the bike is one of the most significant things when it comes to aerodynamics. So being able to kind of optimize your body position is absolutely crucial. And I think that's a really smart decision. You mentioned it has a box on the down tube and that's, and that's right. It, it kind of gets that is something that we see in the triathlon world a lot, kind of integrated aero storage bottles. And, that, and they've added that to this bike as well. Although, you know, as you might imagine it's not uci legal because it's essentially a fairing <laughs> um but yes the bike is faster with it in place it also gets Orbea's uh kind of time trial specific aero bottle and bottle cage as well which is i think a really interesting thing because you know as we all know round big round shapes aren't good and so bottles are particularly unaerodynamic um we're gonna get a test bike in shortly hopefully uh, I'm not. I'm not quite convinced this uh, Orbea solution is as quite as elegant as BMC's. BMC uses a kind of an aero bottle cage to, you know, smooth the airflow around a standard bottle, which I think is quite good because obviously in a racing situation, if you have to get a new bottle, or even just when you're out on a, you know, on a, on a ride, you want, you know, you might want to use. Sta- I think standard bottles are just kind of better whereas Orbea's solution you have to if you're using the aero bottle cage you have to use their specific aero bottle and i think you can only fit one at a time i don't think you can fit two on the bike just because they're a little bit bigger than standard and so you know that that starts to become a problem for kind of longer rides where you might want to take two bottles or you might want to exchange a bottle you know if you're in the middle of a race and you want to grab a bottle from the side of the road you know you want to be able to put a standard bottle on it so We'll have to see about that one. But for, obviously for time trials or, you know, short distance triathlons where you only need a, a smaller bottle, that would be fine. But yeah, like it's it's it looks like a really nice bike. It's got clearance for 30 millimeter tires. It's all very modern, nice, clean integration cables at the front. Very nice. Yeah, I the the storage box and the down tube so just to be clear it's basically on the underside of the down tube quite close to the bottom bracket and it's made i don't know how much storage it gives but it's definitely enough where you could for example put your tools absolutely in yeah and just tube. Yeah. and i really like this because ultimately the majority of people who buy this bike are probably not going to be racing on it regularly if at all yeah. and as a solution for an everyday rider why not yeah like why not absolutely it's, it's totally practical it means you don't have to use any stupid saddlebags, though I love them. Uh, it's just a really nice solution. It's kind of made me think, well, why aren't more brands doing this? So, We've obviously yeah. seen the likes of like the specialized swap boxes, which, again, I'm a big, big fan of this. Trek also have a similar thing on their Demane. I don't know if they do on the Madone. Um, and, you know, why not make the most of these these 
tubes and frame shapes. Yeah, I really like I think it. it's something that's come over from triathlon, but you're right that it, it's kind of in gravel now as well. And and yeah, like you're totally right. The vast majority of people are not buying bikes to use in UCI sanctioned races. So, and even if you are, you, you know, you, you know you, most people who use bikes in UCI sanctioned races you probably don't carry spare tubes and tools anyway. So you just take it off for that race. And, and like, like you say, like, there's not really a, there's no downside to it. You take it off when you don't need it. You put it on when you do like it. And, and it kind of, as you say, it integrates very cleanly. It makes the bike faster. You know, I, I really like a saddlebag as well, but you know, they get a bit grimy. You might want to put a rear light on underneath the seat. Cause that's quite a nice location for it as well. And it gets spray off the road kind of tends to ruin them. You have to replace them every few years. Yeah. So I, th- I think it's a really nice idea and um, yeah, I'm really looking forward to testing it. Yes, I'm sure you are. It's uh, it's the perfect Simon Bromley bike. With that and your new tires, you're going to be unstoppable. <laughs> and actually, I will, one thing I will say for Obeya as well, and that obviously they were pushing this in their presentation, is um, all of their kind of you know poshest race bikes are available on their Mayo program as well. And and every time I'm reminded about that, it it, it basically offers you the option to kind of customize components for for fit for free, which is very nice, but also to make upgrades. And to get a really nice fancy paint job, uh, you know, a custom paint job, there's over, according to Obeya, there's over a million kind of option combinations. And uh, I really wish more brands would offer it because it's so, it's, su- it's such a cool thing. And I know it obviously, you know, it costs brands money and kind of hurts the bottom line. So I kind of understand why they don't, but I love it. What color would you get it? I see. Yeah. Yeah, I'd I, I maybe bike radar blue and orange to match my stupid Bont shoes and all of my kit. <laughs> <laughs> that's a very, uh, that's a company man answer. That's, that's great. Uh, I'll rescind your P45 in the door. <laughs> Dropping me. Anyway, uh, so finally, we're going to come on to RockShock's new flight attendant system. Now, I'm going to preface this by saying that Simon and I are no longer do Treadingtons, you know. We don't know our way around uh, compression damping that well these days. Nonetheless, it's piqued our interest, and I'm sure Tom Marvin and Rob Weaver will probably talk about this in a future podcast. Anyway, in brief, it's a new fully wireless automatic suspension control system which controls your compression dampening, uh, damping on your suspension fork and shock, tuning it to create the most efficient ride possible. It is extraordinarily clever, and by all accounts, going to weaves, very, very effective when you're out on the trail, though it does require a little bit of nuanced setup. But for kind of fit and forget, you know, riding along and not having to think about setting your bike up to to, to be as efficient as possible, it strikes me as a pretty well-rounded product that I'm not going to go into the nitty gritty of how it works. We have a very, very, very long explainer and video on the site, which is worth watching. I would like to talk about where we think it's going to take tech as a whole. Yeah, I think it's I think it's a really interesting thing because you know I like like you say like I, I I know next to nothing about mountain biking, but I do know that tuning your suspension is quite critical to optimizing the performance you get out of a mountain bike. And um, I would you know this this obviously uses and a kind of as an algorithm to decide you know what you need. But I think it's a really interesting one because it takes some of that guesswork out. And and I don't know if you if you know. I'm sorry if you don't, Jack, to put you on spot, but does would this kind of, you know, adjust things mid-ride depending on, you know, the kind of different section of the course you were on? Because otherwise, you know, at the moment, you know, you set your suspension to one setting and you have to use that for, you know, your, the whole course, right? But can this, can this, is this smart enough to do it as you go along? 
Sort of. So it doesn't really necessarily set up your suspension. That still takes a degree of human input. So like your sag, for example, it's not going to set your pressure in the shock. And it doesn't include tech along the lines of the shock quiz. Now, this is from Cork, which is a brand that's now owned by the RockShox SRAM group. And I've used the shock quiz back in the day, and essentially it measures how the air is moving through your suspension and tells you good, bad, more rebound, <laughs> less rebound. And for someone that's not really engaged with setting up suspension like me, it's a great thing. It's very, very clever. This doesn't really do so much of that, and it's more affecting how the suspension is going to behave at basically five millisecond intervals, according to RockShox. Now, there is a bit more manual control you can have in there to sort of suit how you ride and manual overrides. But again... Rob Weaver, shredder in chief, he's the person to go and listen to about this because pfft, me and Simon, we're all about <laughs> aero storage <laughs> solutions these days. <laughs> I, I do think it's interesting, though, as you say, and kind of looking at it from a point, a perspective of, you know, where tech is going. And, you know, I mean, this is such a cliche, but obviously mountain bikers seem to be much more open to adopting new technologies than roadies like myself because obviously you know we've seen widespread adoption of e-bikes within the mountain bike community for example but obviously e-bikes are popular on the road as well but i don't think it's to the same extent and and you know di2 has been very popular on the road but i i wonder if you know suspension hasn't really taken off on the road yet it's starting to get there with gravel perhaps and maybe that will change some hearts and minds but, you know, is this the kind of, could you ever see you know, algorithmic controlled suspension on a road bike? I, I wonder if people really want simplicity from road bikes, but maybe well, that's unfair. I mean, if you look at something like the Pinarello system, that had essentially algorithmic, algorithmic control where you'd hit cobbles and it would open up the suspension at the rear. But it was not nearly as clever as this system is. I think for me, what's more interesting is if we look at the likes of ETAP, mountain bike drivetrains and I presume a new DI2 drivetrain will come down the line. You've also got sensors and controls in your suspension and there's the possibility to integrate with things like power meters, also your tire pressure with things like the tire waves. Like we are moving towards this very kind of all-encompassing electronic ecosystem which to some people and probably me as well is, is not really what you're most interested in but I'm always interested to see where tech is going and where it's progressing. So from a passive passive observer's point of view I think there's a real opportunity now that electronics are proliferating more in bikes as a whole to create something a bit more holistic rather than the sort of like hodgepodge solution where, yeah, of course, there are advantages to electronic drivetrains over mechanical. But how do we fit that more broadly into the, the cycling ecosystem? I think it's a very bright and interesting future and it will keep you and I in a job for quite some time to come. Well, that's always good. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, do check out those articles on the new RockShox system on bikeradio.com. There's also a very good video from Rob Weaver on the YouTube channel, which, to be honest, is heavy going some of the text. So I recommend you watch the video. <laughs> yes, um, definitely. Well, Simon, thanks very much. It's great to chat to you. As always. Yeah. Well, and if you've enjoyed this podcast, please give us a five star review or leave any comments on the article on biteradar.com. I will respond to them unless they're really mean. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no, I will respond to them. So as always, we love your questions. And of course, 
If you haven't already, please subscribe for more wonderful insights like this. <laughs> and um, yeah, until next time, thank you very much for listening. Cheers. Thank you for listening to the Bike Radar podcast. If you want any more information on what we've been talking about or more news and views on cycling, check out bikeradar.com. Bye.